so ladies. I like talking about asteroid mining and long walks talking about asteroid mining. <laughs> I'll, name, I'll name an asteroid after He's you. Like, There's a lot of them. It's like, wait. Do you want to talk about asteroid mining? Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and joining me today, we have TJ. Hello. And Augie. Hello. And a little bit later, we'll have Anthony Hennig joining us to talk about his thesis on asteroid mining and public policy. So first of all, um, at the suggestion of one of our listeners, we're going to talk a little bit about recent news in space exploration, and uh, we're going to destinate about 15 minutes to that discussion. So the first story I have on my list um, is actually one about SPECS itself, RIT Space Exploration. So Augie, why don't you talk about what happened this past weekend? So this past weekend, uh, we launched our second high-altitude balloon of the school year. Uh, It reached about 97,000 feet and popped and landed about an hour drive away. So we were able to recover it, bring it back. Uh, We got GoPro footage off of it. And uh, that's posted online on YouTube. If you can, if you search for RIT Space Exploration How to Do Balloon, it'll come up. And uh, basically, what we were testing is uh, a CubeSat deployment mechanism, which was a senior design project. Uh, the way RIT works is that they have um, all the engineers get together and form a multidisciplinary senior design project. It's a capstone project. It's essentially a capstone project, exactly, that they have to come up with a deliverable at the end of the year. And uh, Anthony actually was on this team, and they developed uh, basically a mechanism to deploy solar panels. Uh, for a CubeSat, like a low-cost way to do so. Yeah, it's like spring lo- the sides of the cube are spring-loaded and flip out so that rather than only one side facing the sun at a time, you can have effectively three sides of a cube facing right. the sun with all solar panels so you can... So you could generate much more power, and it uses yeah. nichrome, basically. You, you, you cut, when you heat nichrome up, it cuts a little wire that allows them to deploy their mechanism. And we get to test that on the uh, high-altitude balloon. We had it mounted on the outside. Yeah. So. so the reason why putting it on a high-altitude balloon is because it's pretty much space since when the balloon carries it out of the thick parts of the atmosphere. And um, so it's not exactly in space because there's still air up there. But right. effectively, same temperature range. Temperatures can drop to about negative 60 C, and it, the pressure is about 1% of Earth's atmosphere. Right. So it's not quite space, but it definitely allows us to test our hardware in a much harsher environment than you can find for here on Earth for cheaply. Yeah. Yeah. And our second piece of Specs news is that uh, this Saturday, Specs is having their payload feasibility review. Basically, all this past semester, Specs has been working on two payloads for a CubeSat, uh, basically doing proof of concept and design engineering. We have an electrodynamic tether where we would extend a conductive wire from our CubeSat to generate electricity. And our second payload is advanced radiation memory testing, where we would use cutting-edge computer memory on space and basically build up flight heritage for that so that NASA and other organizations can be more confident in using this new technology on other satellites. So. We have had two teams working the entire semester, kind of working on those different issues, coming up with a payload plan for that. And Specs as a whole is going to sit down on Saturday and basically see what went well, what didn't go well, and plot out what we're going to be working on for next semester, with the goal being that we would submit the CubeSat launch initiative proposal in November and then begin development work on our CubeSat following that. Right. So the CubeSat launch initiative proposal, it's basically... You, if you can demonstrate to NASA that 
um, you can do good science in space and that you're capable of actually producing a functioning CubeSat to do that project, um, NASA will help you get into space. Uh, basically, they, they foot the cost for launch. So mm -hmm. you hand over your CubeSat to NASA and um, you get to do your mission. So that's our goal and that's in November. So there's a, there's a good time crunch. Um, I think we can do it. I'm excited. So why don't we move into uh, some more international news. And uh, the first story in the news this past week was, uh, you may have seen it, Kepler uh, basically detected a bunch of new exoplanets, and NASA announced that they've found an additional 1,284 planets. Yeah, so actually, we found a lot more, but These from, the, the, ground and the, from yeah. the ground and satellites, we can't prove that certain things we see are actually exoplanets because mm -hmm. they might be weird binary star systems or something. And what Kepler did is it looked at them and verified or validated is the language they use that they are indeed exoplanets. And that's 1,284 confirmed. And that's pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, and related to that, uh, Kepler's successor, basically, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a huge project. It's going to be the biggest uh, mirror will, humanity will have put in space. And um, it will kind of do some of the things Kepler did bigger and better. And um, James Webb Space Telescope is like integrated and they're doing testing with the instruments it's going to use. So it's finally coming together. And that's, that's really cool. That's also the successor to the Hubble telescope, isn't yeah. it? So that's that's going to be a, a huge launch, yeah. super important for NASA, one of the biggest satellites that we've launched in many years. Yeah. And Hubble is, what, 25 years old or something? Kepler is seven years old. It was only designed for a 3.5-year uh, mission. And Kepler, despite losing two reaction wheels, which it uses to point at these stars, they've managed to extend its mission life to seven years. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's still doing this great science, which is great to see. Hubble's, you know, the same way. That was 1990 is when that launched, and they yeah. were able to extend the life of that one for a very long time. So hopefully we see the same with the James James Webb Deep Space Telescope. Yeah. So. And the, the another, another piece of news that I'm super, super, super excited about um, is that NASA released 56 patented space and rocket technologies to the public. So they said, here you go. And they actually made a website that you can go to to search these patents. Um, we'll have a link in, in the show notes to it. And it's all public domain. And when I read this article, the most important part is that when they released these patents, um, they said they are freely available for unrestricted commercial use, which means that SpaceX, um, the United Launch Alliance, Blue Origin, any satellite company, anyone doing stuff in space can borrow this knowledge that NASA has done and use it to develop their own technology. Um, yeah. Like everything from rocket nozzles to um, hypersonic flight. Yeah. You can kind of see a precursor in this in uh, Bigelow Aerospace, where NASA worked on a module for the ISS called TransHab. And eventually, uh, NASA and Congress decided the whole program was too expensive to fully complete and add that module to the ISS. And so a lot of that work kind of got disbanded. And so what Bigelow did was he went to NASA and actually purchased those patents from him, uh, from NASA, 
and started his own company around building inflatable space station modules. And so we're finally getting um, progress on that front. Beam, which was their Bigelow expandable activity module, is a the first ISS attachable module that's inflatable, and that's slowly progressing. They've had two test modules in orbit. And so that is a kind of an example of a NASA and commercial partnership, with that being uh, NASA sold the patents. This is NASA giving them out for free. The public domain. So it's even easier for companies and individuals to work with this technology. Yeah. Uh, so our next news item is uh, this article. Ars Technica did a whole write-up on uh, this super strippy rocket titled, One Small Stipulation for NASA, One Giant Burden for Exploration. So I encourage you guys to go to Ars Technica and read the whole thing. But basically, it talks about how NASA is giving uh, seed money to these new small sat launchers. Uh, companies called like Firefly Aerospace and Electron Rocket are building small rockets to launch roughly 100 kilogram payloads into orbit. Yeah, so it's and like a sound. It looks like a sounding rocket, which is suborbital, like basically a missile pointed straight up. But these ones are capable of. Sending yeah, these, these would to be orbit. orbital. Uh, they're basically smaller Falcon ones, if you're familiar with that platform. Uh, most of these are private uh, entities, so this is kind of considered new space. Space that's kind of open that trail and a lot of these companies are filling in that bottom uh, kind of edge of the market that no one is servicing now that Falcon once discontinued. Um, so that was a program running by NASA and the article goes into uh, Senator Sh Shelby who represents the great state of Alabama and a little bit of pork that got thrown in with this program where you're looking at five to six million dollars allocated to each of these companies for R&D and there's a 30 million dollar earmark for uh, any company that was working with uh, the Super Strippy rocket platform. And that's this sounding rocket. Yeah, so this was strippy. a older project um, that was actually a partnership with the University of Hawaii, uh, Aerojet, and the United States government. Uh, and that was to design a small uh, rocket to put a small payload into orbit. And so um, this project was big, and I believe in the early 2000s, and after several failures was discontinued. So they tried out the technology ran into some problems and eventually discontinued it. And so now there is an earmark for $30 million for any company that wants to take this technology and utilize it uh, basically as their main platform. So basically reuse this rocket. Um, and there are only two companies with plans to use that. They're both from Alabama. And so there's a, an interesting kind of... Uh, interesting dynamic there. Very interesting dynamic. And as, the senator pushing this earmark is um, Senator Shelby from Alabama, right? Yes. So was... so the, the bigger problem with this is that a lot of companies have already invested their own private capital into building small launchers. Right. So by incentivizing an alternative that isn't necessarily better, by giving them federal money doesn't really help these other companies. Like I in see. the news a few weeks ago, uh, two of the SpaceX founders actually right. broke out and uh, started their own company called Vector Space Systems that's designed to do essentially the same thing, launch small satellites into orbit. But this kind of hurts them because they're now going to have to compete with another potentially two more companies that are using something that's already been developed that they're getting essentially free money for continuing. Right. Yeah. Right. And so uh, another kind of angle this article goes on to is that uh, NASA's like advanced technology research budget, this is taking a significant chunk out of that for technology that's being developed by the private sector already. So this $30 million is the $30 million, $30 million from NASA's budget. Yes. So like they can't spend this $30 million on the, NASA, the 
clipper to Europa. Yeah, so so NASA has an $18 billion budget, so it's oh, okay. rather large. People want it to be bigger, but it's the largest uh, space program budget in the world right now. Uh, however, there is roughly $500 million dedicated to advanced technology research. And so $30 million out of that is a significant chunk. So as projects like advanced solar panels, um, other things for long-term missions to Mars, things that need a long lead time of development, those are getting scaled back because there's not enough money. And this project, which already has uh, the requirements met through the private sector, is getting funded. Well, should we move on to our fourth and final story? Anthony Hennig is here to join us. Hey. Hey, everybody. How yeah. are you doing? Um, you can tell I'm different because of my weird voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last news item. Boeing CST-100 Starliner has been delayed. Uh, this is part of the commercial crew program. Uh, they were originally trying to launch at the end of 2017, and now they're targeting mid-2018. Yeah. Well, they're still uh, working toward an unmanned flight in 2017, but the first manned launch is in 2018 now. It's scheduled for 2018, according to... I'm going to cite my sources here. You're welcome, Anthony. Leanne Carrot, who is Boeing's executive vice president and president and chief executive officer of Boeing's Defense, Space, and Security Division. So this is pretty cool. There's kind of a small space race, a friendly space race, between SpaceX and Boeing. SpaceX uh, plans to fly astronauts to the ISS with Dragon 2, or Crew Dragon, and they were originally a few months ahead, but there's always potential for schedule slip, and now that Boeing has slipped, everyone's kind of looking at SpaceX to, whether to see they, whether they slip or they actually go back to the ISS first. Yeah. There's actually a little prize waiting for them at the ISS. The last shuttle launch in 2011 left an American flag that uh, the astronaut who left said that an American uh, would come and return very shortly. So now, six years later, we're finally getting to that point where an a-, a U.S. astronaut on a U.S. space vehicle will be able to re- retrieve that flag. Right. And so SpaceX is still targeting 2017, um, but as you said, with things in development, especially since commercial crew, uh, we want to make sure that these astronauts will be flying on the best possible designs. Mm -hmm. Um, That I'm not going to be surprised if SpaceX slips, but even if SpaceX slips now, there's still, like, it's still a really close race between um, them and Boeing. So it'll be really fun to watch. And, and when you look at the national space policy, that's why I'm here today, is to talk about policy mm-hmm. and stuff. When you look at the national space policy, that's a really exciting thing, too, because it was the most recent version was drafted in 2010, and it says to support science industry and space-based industry here in the United States of America, um, which is pretty exciting. So we actually see people competing to get to the International Space Station. I mean, why, why would you even want to do it? Well, we've got a market, there's interest, there's a lot of public interest. Uh, especially if you're one of the listeners to this podcast. And uh, I think it's getting pretty exciting, actually. So yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's, a good, it's a good competition, and nobody really loses that much. It's, so. it's important, too, because the longer we wait, the more money we're funding Russia, because that's currently who we pay to launch our astronauts to the International Space Station. I mean, not that there's not so much of a tension between us and Russia. I mean, there... Um, excuse me. I, no, I mean no, no, no. I think yeah. it'd be good to have multiple nations participating and it's and there are it's just russia is really the only one and i think personally i i think the main issue is that there's only one right thing one vehicle that can take more more countries more vehicles means 
better prices. You know what I mean? Better, better and, capital. And generally more access. I mean, more you can you can access, you can yeah. talk about tensions and everything, but the most exciting for me thing for me to see in recent history was some new open agreement policies with China. So China's trying to build their own space station right now. They have Tiangong One, which is really similar to the Orly Zarya module that was put up for the International Space Station. And they're going to use the same kind of mentality of a, a six-ray docking node or five-ray docking node, really, because you got the spaceship attached to the other one, and then build out from that. Mm. So they're, they're following some of the same technolo- technological progression as Mir. Um, but, you know, they're trying to make their own space station based off of old Mir designs and based off of new stuff that they're trying to integrate. And we just signed a cooperation agreement. You know, maybe we'll see a Chinese module on the ISS before deorbits. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really exciting. This is a good time. I'm just saying. <laughs> is China developing their own crew? Module? So they have Shenzhou. And Shenzhou is, is, has a lot of... I'm trying to think of a good way to put it. Lots of commonality with the Soyuz platform. Yeah. Um, so technical and process upgrades to like the flight avionics, but right. if you actually compare side to side, oh, like, like you have. have on paper in front of you. Yeah, yeah, because I've been writing this stuff very too much. Um, when you actually look at them side to side, I hope this rustling isn't too much, but um, you know they they're fairly identical. Yeah, they're based say. off of the uh, Soviets. You have a reentry module, an orbital module, and a service propulsion module design. Uh, so you basically have uh, oh, yeah, three distinct elements. Uh, Anthony's showing off a really good picture of that. Well, if you look at Apollo, uh, you have basically your crew orbital module and then a service module. And that's also um, how CST and Dragon both have that kind of s- similar setup. And Gemini and Mercury and... Yeah, yeah and it's, all, it's all pretty much teardrop on the front and yeah. Cool. So that closes out our news segment um thanks for that suggestion um if you have more suggestions you can email us specscast at gmail.com um so let's move on to the bulk of this episode and what i've been like spamming the twitter about asteroid mining and public policy so episode four asteroid mining we did get into this a little bit we had audio issues but there seems to be a lot of interest um, rightfully so. I mean, this is really cool. And by the time this airs, <laughs> oh, yeah. you will have just defended your thesis on asteroid mining. What's, your, what's the title of your thesis? So, yeah, I, I think I got kind of introduced. My name's Anthony Hennig. I'm uh, the student at Rochester Institute of Technology and soon the George Washington University. I'm currently enrolled here at RIT in mechanical engineering for my undergraduate and then science technology and public policy for my graduate program. Uh, it's it's an interesting combination. I really like it uh, because both the engineering and the policy play off of each other. And we're going towards a really interesting direction where in the history of mankind, whenever we've ran into mineral scarcities, we've gone someplace new. Um, only recently has it become prevalent for us to figure out alternatives or figure out new materials or this whole concept of material science, which is really weird, um, but really exciting and interesting at the same time. Uh, so b- because of how we set up our space race and how we have set up our national national space programs to develop technologies for in situ resource utilization, it seems more and more likely that asteroid mining for resource and mineral recovery might be possible in the near future. However, 
looking through the lens of history, uh, not only can we learn how to create a reliable policy landscape, which is what I set out to actually do for four major policy issues. It used to be five, and I could wrap one up into something <laughs> else. Um, because I can analyze the current situation, see how it might progress, and give some good policy recommendations about how to address the issue. I, I am not here to say if it's good or bad, but I am here to support it if it does decide to come to fruition, to advocate for it. So that's what my thesis is all about. Yeah. I look at how should we handle technology development? How should we handle uh, the surveying duty? How should we handle the ownership? A lot of people say you need to own an asteroid. Yeah. Um, I propose a counter-argument based on history. And then finally, how can we kind of help these early industries out if it does seem good? Yeah. Or, or what could we do to help promote the growth of industry? Because that is charged under the national space policy of nearly all restaurant nations. And you so. mean support it in like uh, financially or, or so I, infrastructure? I actually, I realized the other day I was listening to uh, Intelligence Squared and they were talking about corporate subsidies. I'm like, oh man, I didn't talk about that at all. And to be completely honest, I'm kind of glad I didn't. What I did focus on rather was how should we look at the creation of new markets? Uh, governments often play a major policy role in saying what can you and can you not sell? And the U.S. Space Act, which was just passed this past November, H.R. 2262, actually said, yeah, U.S. citizens can own, possess, and sell whatever they get from asteroids. Um, so if you look at proposed policies in the field, a lot of people say, well, the United States government needs to be there to buy platinum, or they need to be there to do this or do that or create a market or provide infrastructure yeah. to connect space resources to terrestrial resources and terrestrial resources to space resources. And uh, I, I looked at it in kind of a interesting light. You know, you have things like the Kelly Air Mail Act, um, Air Mail Act. We have some interesting situations with mining or nationalized mining and non-nationalized mining throughout the world. You the mean ter terrestrial mining. Terrestrial mining. Yeah, it still happens here on Earth. I mean, <laughs> we still got a lot of economic resource deposits here. But um, yeah, did a really serious analysis of what can history teach us. And uh, because the same, this thing has happened before. A lot of times. When? Can you give an example? Oh, I've got a lot of examples. Okay. Uh, so the ones that everyone calls out the most, gold rushes. Uh, interesting technology development. You have the surveying that finds new resources. In right. the case of the American gold rush, that was found nine days right before we annexed uh, the restaurant chunks of the United States. Yeah. Uh, did you know there was an Australian gold rush? I did not. Turned did out not. completely different. Massive rebellion. Rebellion how? Uh, the miners actually, there was a fee put in place that was prohibitive to mining. You had to pay this upfront before you even started to put a shovel into the dirt kind of thing. Eureka Stockade Rebellions happened about three years later where people were fed up with the risks that were, they were incurring, not only from the act of mining, but also having to constantly pay this fee with no guarantee. So that was an example. So um, did they rebel against the policy or against? Like, they rebelled against the soldiers who were enacting the policy. Ah. <laughs> charging them the fee. That was, yeah, yeah, which was a really interesting thing. Uh, I talk about the settling of the New World in the 1400s yeah. and 1500s because Spain came over here with the express interest of finding silver. Yeah. And they made a ton of money for the first 50 years. Yeah. And Portugal, then, with the same thing in, in Brazil. Uh, exactly. There's a lot of res resource exploitation. Yeah. 
Um, and then you see a complete contrast with the French and British exploitation of the new world. They were focused on renewable industries or scalable industries. Like plantations? Exactly. Or trading. Trading was a big thing. A lot yeah. of people forget trading and timber were the other major drivers. And in comparison to those typical silver mines, they could be scared up. And you could have individuals start those plantations or start those uh, trading posts. Right. Um, whereas with the with the uh, actual mine, it was in a very specific location. And it could, required. That's all of the resources are there, and once it's gone, it's, it's gone. gone. Yeah. So, with regards to asteroid mining, do you propose uh, a, something different from from those two philosophies, or do you? How do you deal with that in your thesis? So I break down the, the the all the major policy issues down into four major sections, like I mentioned before. Yeah, and those are based on the policies proposed by other peoples, and also what we see in the corn policy space. Right. Huh. So, so when you evaluate these yeah. different policies. Um, by those four criteria, right? Well, what I then do is I break it down into what are the socially and economically advantageous policies that others recommend. So let's talk about technology policy. Yeah. There's a lot of things to be developed out of asteroid mining. For sure. Um, you mean you mean in terms of the technology needed to get us there or the technology needed yeah. to actually do the mining? So, do yeah, Dr. Ricky J. Lee, uh, he wrote a great book on the topic, and I'm just bringing it up right now. He recommends things, everything from balutes to advanced autonomy. Uh, it's a re-entry system. Okay. It's a large ring-shaped parachute. It helps okay. increase your cross-sectional area while also being a parachute to some extent. I see. Uh, it's really useful, actually. But, you know, there have been recommendations made about how to handle this in terms of what you should develop. Uh, autonomous hardware, in-situ resource utilization, um, guidance navigation control, cheaper access to space, electric propulsion, nuclear thermal rocketry. A really popular one that I see mentioned a lot in the literature about why we should do asteroid mining is steam rocketry. Yeah. Instead, of, instead of going full-out nuclear thermal, you say... Well, instead of dividing it up into hydrogen and oxygen, I'm just going to pump water into my reaction vessel yeah. and use that to propel myself along. Um, so you have a lot of discussion about there's a lot of things to develop. right? Um, and so what I do is I say, well, let's look at some of the historical analogs. When we look at all traditional mining structures, those have been primarily free market. So Spain, the biggest one was Demon Metallica. It was a book. Uh, drafted by German authors and then brought over to the New World. Okay. And it was all these new techniques about how to get oils out of the ground. Um, it was pretty much free market, and over time it's progressed more and more to this generic research structure. Generic research being, um, I have a problem, I'm going to go ask the community to solve that problem for me. I'm going to pay someone in the community, they can keep IP for a short period of time, and then go off and capitalize on it. Okay. One step further from that on the spectrum is procurement research. That's like the F-35. Hey, I want a cool plane that can do all these different things. I will contract that job to somebody specifically to develop those technologies and put into a single packet. So you have the spectrum. Um, so we see that with mining, but we see with aerospace, we see gradual democratization. We can yeah. say, well, we sorted out as procurement base. We hired someone to make a spacesuit, a uh, Playtex, actually. Yeah. Uh, we hired someone to build the Gemini capsule. We hired someone to build this. And are you saying that in the modern industry, it's becoming less of the specific people being requested and more open to like how military 
contracts um, SpaceX um, yeah it, game that it, was granted the ability it, to bid on something so this, in theory any private people can bid on it instead of NASA going or the Air Force going to one particular and entity. there's a huge history of these competitions becoming more and more successful open innovation is part of it and it, it's becoming very successful within the field of aerospace engineering because it allows more people to engage so is this transition from one sort of regime of public policy to the new more open one is that reflected in the past as well or is this something a new turn that aerospace industry has kind of it's found it, its way into it's been moving in that direction uh with the increasing growth of private space application we've been seeing more and more generic research happen and we've been seeing even more completely free market competitions happen. Uh, if you look at like all the aviation, that's another great example. You have things like the Kelly Airmail Act. Back in 1922, 1925, the United States government said, hey, uh, we want to promote airline industry. So anyone who has free space on their plane, you can go over to the post office, pick up some mail, get some cash for it, and fly it across somewhere. And so in that process, you kind of had this like competition, structure. Now we're even th seeing things like Google Lunar XPRIZE, which is almost completely independent of government saying, go land on the moon, compete, yeah. go figure it out. And that's in direct contrast to something like the Ortigue Prize, 1925, given to Charles Lindbergh for flying right. across the Atlantic Ocean. So we're seeing that democratization of space, and that's one element of the problem, um, or one element of the policy issue. So is this what your policy that you have in your thesis kind of advocates for then? A greater democratization of space? Yeah, because there's two other fundamental policy issues wrapped up in it. One of them is the dissemination of technology between non-industrialized and industrialized states. Um, when we look at all the major policy issues, right now there's 70, about 70 national space programs. Of that, only about 12 have gone into space. And of those 12, only four have really flown people themselves. Right. It's pretty difficult. Right. And so there's a huge disparity between the individuals who can go into space and those who cannot. And that's based on technology. That's based on geographic location. There's just simply some things that yeah. you can't And you, you believe with, with a more democratized system, that knowledge and that technology, the same way military technology trickles down into civilian use, you're saying that the like upper echelon of technology will disseminate into the the space startups yeah i mean that's what we'll see happen as is right now from both sides so when we talk about mining asteroids we're combining essentially aerospace engineering which is complicated and difficult as is with increasingly generic research related mining technology so when increasingly we look generic in increasingly generic research base. So we're going from free market to, oh, okay. yeah, it's on I the spectrum. Generic resource. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's a spectrum between free market, generic, and procurement. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's, thought... that, it's that single spectrum because we have things like the International Seabed Authority and the deep sea mining within the Clarion Clipperton Zone. This is another example. I'm I have no about. idea what either of those are. So uh, there's an interesting loophole that opened up after UN Closed 3, which is the UN Convention on the Law and the Sea. I uh, allowed nations to actually claim or kind of like allocate licenses for space out in the middle of the deep seabed. Uh, you've got oh. some interesting mineral resources. You've got hydrothermal vents. You've got manganese nodules. Yeah, it's right next to the crust. Um, 
So for a period of time, a lot of companies actually said, hey, could I get this license to like develop technology to do this and everything? And at the same time, they also got national support. That mining that we saw in the gold rush, where it was a guy figuring out the washo process, which is that panning process, or aqualicking, where you actually sluice off uh, gold grains from the side of a mountain you're spraying down with water, it's not possible anymore. To build a spacecraft, you need a lot of different types of people. You need a lot of help, too. And so in light of that, in light of the flow of dissemination of technology and how de democratic space systems development tends to spread knowledge out more evenly, and also in light of the variability of high-level policy support to develop these technologies, it, it comes to the conclusion that having some kind of generic research policy to say, hey, if you want to go and develop ISRU, um, go ahead and do that. We need that for some of our own programs. Like if you look at the technology assessment areas for NASA and then the technology someone wants to develop for uh, asteroid mining, there's a ton of over overlap. There's like four things that don't overlap. Right. <laughs> it, so it all it all generally lines up. It helps provide a better dissemination of technology. It reduces costs. It increases policy support over the long term, and it allows us to better address the technologies and allow more to come out of it. Okay. So yeah. Uh, so obviously, I think I, I agree with you from the perspective of the government. And we talked earlier before you arrived about how NASA just released like 57 new patents 56. to the 56. Yeah. And, and we, all, we all agree and we think that's great. But what happens if another company develops themselves the technology to go out and mine asteroids and they spend billions and billions of dollars on the R&D to go perform this task? You know, they launch CubeSats, they mm -hmm. develop all the technologies and they test it out. And then they start mining asteroids. Uh, is it is it, I guess, unfair or is it going to decentivize their ability to perform the work if we're allowing all that information um, to be public? You know so, what I mean? So that's a unique thing about generic research. Um, if you look at Everest, he was a great policy writer about technology policy about a decade or two ago. What he describes is a product versus process innovation. Generic research is specifically designed to incorporate product innovation. That is creating a new mechanism, creating a new process. It's not going to be good, um, but it's going to work. By using a generic research structure, we can hand off process innovation, which is increasing the efficiency, decreasing the cost, optimizing it off to business. That's the general idea behind generic research, which is work with some government work with a policy to develop the basic bones of a technology. And that's kind of what NASA is doing now. Exactly. And then with this, okay. So, so that's kind of like... good. Obviously, when it comes to perspective of, of the government and their funding, but the only concern then I see with your policy is what is the incentive for a company to develop a new technology? Not necessarily make a more efficient process, but develop a new technology. Funding and knowledge support. So generic innovation aims to intervene at the early steps of a product innovation or start that new product innovation and say, hey, we're going to give you access to resources, funds, areas to test it in. And then once you get it to start moving along, start sure. rolling, sure. it's up to you. You'll figure it out. You can make it better. But we can help you get started. So it's expanding uh, the amount of entities that are able to perform the research not 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 entirely. It varies based on the technology and everything, but it, it allows you to plant a few seeds. Right. Like the whole idea behind, like a good analogy for generic research is a 
a policy agent, somebody who's running the policy, I, I recommend ultimately for it to be national, to prevent it from international dissemination, which has a whole history of issues with it. Like two companies backed out of technology development with UN Close 4, which said, hey, if you're developing technologies to mine the seabed, you have to hand it over to every nation. Like two companies backed out immediately. Right, that's kind of what yeah, my I, I argue that, I argue that should be kept national. Um because that also reflects the general policies that we have on like ITON, ballistic missile right, technologies. Right. It it just it works for everyone's benefit to be kept national to some extent, or to have a mechanism set up so that somebody could sell their product and process innovations to another another company. Or say like, hey, you wanna, you know, country X, you wanna have a mining rig? I'll I'll sell it to you. You know, then you can have those benefits like that too. So do you think from the from the perspective of um, profit, like a profitable business, do you think it would be more profitable? Um, for like, do you think there's an incentive for the people that get there first? Like um, the that's how every major resource rush has operated. But I mean, in and terms I, of technology, I, I, not necessarily getting there because you're a first access to the resource, like. If do you think there's going to be a race to to get there? I mean, I guess I don't is, know. Yeah, I got no idea. Um, the whole idea behind are we talking about with ownership or are we talking about technology development or economic? It's, I guess it, both. There's is a there lot of a issues gold rush wrapped that's up. A space rush, potentially. Um, but in light of the high costs, in light of the inflexibility of the development of this, and inflexible, I mean, there's long lead times. Things are tightly coupled. Yeah. Um, both physically as in like, well, if I increase my mass of my drill by two kilograms, then I need like four more kilograms of propellant. Right. You know, you have that kind of tight coupling. Um, you also have tight coupling with lead times, with actually getting there. Um, what I would recommend is to use policy to mitigate some of the initial risks to see if it is valuable. Right. I'm still trying to think about whether or not this is entirely valuable. I think it might be. Um, but really what I'm trying to do with my policy recommendations is at least get the Petri dish ready to go. Okay. And if it is profitable and if it can grow, then the policy is there to help support future expansion. Uh, because we've had numerous issues where people have said, you know, there's a resource rush. And then let's now renegotiate those policies. <laughs> and in light of the, the upfront costs involved with doing this kind of stuff and in, in going to space and mounting sometimes months or year-long right. expeditions to get get a few hundred metric tons of resources right that's a lot of money that's a lot of time that's a lot of energy that's a lot of cost yeah. and so uh, often the concept behind policy in general in any public policy right. is to reduce risk for certain activities until proven otherwise. There's so much room for activities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so like we ha we've had some developments like the Outer Space Treaty, which was, you know, if you ask me, both good and bad in the policy sense. You prevented the militarization and occupation of space by military superpowers, but it also kept it open and free so that we could have the remote sensing and private space industry that we see today. You know, yeah. policy is designed to reduce risk being placed on other people. You know, because if someone managed to militarize space, let's say Almaz was the first one of many. Have you have we talked about Almaz before? No. I don't uh, the Russian that. space station with the anti-aircraft, anti-satellite gun on it. 
Was it a machine gun? It was a machine I'm gun. I'm pretty sure we talked. Yeah, we and it kept, it kept on kicking it around every time they shot it. And they're like, we cannot fix this. Uh. <laughs> um, you know, like, it prevented both of us from putting up stations with machine guns on them. Really good. It kept yeah. space open. Like, how, how terrible would it be to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get my uh, satellite weather map for the day. And then, oh, no, we can't do it because uh, someone shot, shot a satellite. Well, the <laughs> sp- specific concern to keep, okay, keep it yeah. on asteroid mining would maybe be if a company or a, a national government developed the technology to mine asteroids and they went out there and they went to the M-type asteroids that have all these metals and they were able to basically have a monopoly on these. Um, they could basically control all the resources that were brought back on Earth and and essentially control the markets is is there a concern there as well other than just the the military style so first and foremost the outer space treaty prohibits any federal nations nation from owning and exploiting asteroid resource materials now in light of that and in light of everything wrapped up in the outer space treaty and generally how important it is to a fundamental business and kind of political structure to space I don't think that should change too much. It is an incredible document. Um, you, but here we go. Did that contradict the the thing you said before? You said no. Did you say you I've did learned, support I, that there that asteroid mining is a good thing? So are you? No, a, a, I I don't know if asteroid mining is or is not a good thing. Okay. I'm trying to design policy recommendations to help support future growth if it does work out. Future growth, if asteroid mining does happen, but you, you want to help it happen. Not. I'm not. I'm not in the place to argue whether or not it's good or bad. Yeah. I don't know enough about the economics. I don't know enough about any of the systems. But I can do an analysis of history to tell us where we have failed and where we have succeeded before. In terms of the the hypotheses put forward by those who are proposing policy, mm-hmm. and by the way that this technology might develop. Okay. A lot has changed since we last talked. I've read a lot. I've yeah. done a lot of research, yeah. and it shows. Yeah, and how long be, is your thesis? Two hundred pages, and I have ten pages of citations. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know what? I think it would be great, honestly, as an individual. Um, I don't know the economics, though. I can talk to you about the applicable laws and how we've seen laws change. How we've seen uh, the convention on the law and the sea go from. Anyone can get it to, well, it's for the good of mankind, back to, well, if you're part of a country, you can get it. There's a lot of these issues that we can learn from in the field. It's, asteroid mining is just the next cycle of something that's been happening since we've began as a species. Isn't that something cool to say, though? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I don't want to get too high on, high on any, like, high on a whole thing. It's all happened before, and it will happen again. <laughs> no, I'm not in that position, but um, there's a lot to learn from history. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah. TJ, do you have anything to add? So I was going to ask uh, an economic question, but you, you seem <laughs> so, to be shying away from that. Well, I, I give a few recommendations in, in my analysis based on things that I've seen before. So typically when we look at mining, such as with the um, Spain and the silver and everything, and I bring that one up a, a lot. It's really interesting because you go for one really precious thing, you end up killing your own market over time. Um, and you can see this again happen again with modern resource mining. It's called the resource course. Do you think that'll happen with the precious metals on asteroids? It could. It could, or do you think it's likely? It. 
I think it might happen if you don't spend enough time to develop all uh, infrastructure to support it. So, so we if see, we're not careful, we could screw ourselves over? Yeah, so you actually see this rene- renegotiation happen. So 1997, John Lewis comes out. He says, asteroids are great. We should go mine them. There's, it's called Mining the Sky. It's a great book. It is not a technical read. It is a great Sunday afternoon kind of read and everything. It's really cool. It's a, okay. it's a fun, well-written book and everything. Could you maybe provide a list of a few of these books that oh, you yeah. think would highlight? Actually, we could put it in the podcast uh, description. Oh, like- for sure. For sure. There's a lot of great books out there um, about a whole bunch of different issues that okay. come up with this. Um, but yeah, he goes out there. He's like, yeah, platinum, group metals, rare earth minerals. These are already important. And then when we get to the economic analyses done in 2000 and 2001 and 1997 by these Mark Santor, Golak, Golch, they all backed it up. They're like, hey, even with the high launch prices as they are at the time, you know, we're talking 50, 100,000 per kilogram USD. Um, you know, if you went out and got platinum and rare earth metals, that, that would be pretty profitable. In 2008, we see a massive influx of platinum prices. Uh, you just have global growth. You have a, a decrease in the total resource stocks here on Earth. And so you see a lot of new mines kick up into full gear. You go from that conditional resource deposit to an economic one. That's when it's actually profitable to mine. And within about four years, these mines spin up to the point where we have built up another stockpile of things like platinum. We went from $70,000 per kilogram back down to $30,000 per kilogram. Because they... Stock it was profitable, they so they dug up a lot, yeah. and then now they dug up too much. because. <laughs> yeah, in China, Canada, and South Africa. Okay. And these are also really cool places because they're interrelated with asteroid impact sites. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the cool stuff like that. Uh, you have, like, the Laurentian Shield, which is untouched, like, original crust. Wow. Like, I think it's, like, three billion years old or wow. something. And that's why it's got platinum. Because it hasn't been sifted around, and all 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 the cool platinum on Earth is probably deep in the coal right now, and it sucks. Because <laughs> you can't go there. You may have seen a movie about it, but that was oh no, <laughs> that movie, that movie. Um, and so that's where we go to these places. However, we do have a really interesting historical precedent of ordering byproducts. So I mentioned Kelly Aramirlak. That's a really cool one. If we look at like generic. Research in America on aerospace technology to develop new engine types or commercial crew systems, um, we end up getting a lot of benefits out of that. Yeah. Because it, it's almost like a backup. And we see this in history too the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act was like only do agriculture, figure out some way to do agriculture with your land, and it's totally yours. Um, and we see that with things like the gold rush, we see that with both of them. We see that even with the International Telecommunications Union, to some extent, and IANA, the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority, that when you ask for these ancillary products as a national government which with incredible spending power, like it really helps out. Um, but with modern mining, when we see like, oh, I want this really precious mineral, you get this resource cost situation where you don't build up infrastructure to support further economic development and then you are a slave to the economic controls. So buy water, maybe. That's actually what I recommend, maybe. 
So a major difference that I see with some of these like Earth terrestrial analogies is that the technology development to go and mine these new mines mm-hmm. isn't necessarily the bar isn't as high as it would take to go to space. Yeah. And so the reason that ashtray mining excites me is because it incentivizes companies and governments to developing new and exciting space technologies to actually go out there and explore them, and not necessarily just mining them because the cost of exploring them would be better, but developing the technologies to go do it. So I'm kind of curious, like what what in your policy would incentivize or decentivize companies or governments from doing this? So what I'm arguing at this point is policy should prevent major governments from probably getting involved with the precious metal resources. We've seen that failed over, fail over and over and over again. And then when we have the threat of having to give that up underneath the common heritage of mankind, which says, no matter what you mind, you have to give it to everyone else equally, which is what we've seen with the International Seabed Authority and even fishing, distant waters fishing. Um, things get weird. Uh, and, and you also have to look at it in this way. What purpose would anyone have right now for platinum? Just having a couple metric tons of platinum in orbit. Not much. I ultimately recommend asking for an ancillary product, water ice. Water ice is really usable as is, and there are systems in place not too far off from what we can actually use to take full advantage of those materials in orbit, whether that be hydrogen fuel cells, whether or not that be radiation shielding, or even drinkable water. So you argue that the resources that should be targeted for asteroid mining aren't the ones that are valuable, but rather the ones that are useful? I'm not getting into the economics about what's valuable. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, with With the platinum and everything, what I'm saying is that Maybe we should have a policy in place to support the purchasing of water. If an asteroid mining company also wants to get platinum, or if that's their primary goal, they can go do that. But we've seen that change over the past couple of years, going from $70,000 per kilogram. It's too unstable. And it's now 30000 I... And it's decreasing even faster. It's still valuable. I mean, the launch cost of an Atlas V is about $30,000 per kilogram. So, you know, if you, if you put a rocket up there to go capture an asteroid the exact same mass and bring it back, you've, you've net zeroed. But um, from looking at the history and looking at what's kind of valuable within the community, which, which they have put out, the community right now, and I'm talking about Santor, I'm talking about Lewis, I'm talking about Golok, I'm talking about um, Rand Simborg from Competitive Enterprise, I'm talking about Vidvis Beldavs and Dr. Ricky J. Lee. They all tend to agree on two things, creating infrastructure to support economic exploitation and also generating a market. What I could argue is generate the infrastructure and the market for something like Waddle, which is not super profitable, but it will be money. And think about it, if you brought back tons of water, we aren't judging it based on the ground evaluation. We could base it on the, the LEO evaluation. And, what is the infrastructure that you're referencing? There is none. What like what would the end goal <laughs> development of this infrastructure so, be? So individuals, let's see, Saunter recommends that governments be the ones to set up like a depot in space where you could go dock something and then shovel platinum into a capsule and jettison it to Earth. Another argument from Abundant Planet, uh, they're a 501c3 nonprofit for space development, and they've changed to a different name now. Uh, they say, well, policy needs to be put in place to make the International Space Station like a train depot. And you have spaceships coming up and you shovel your stuff in it. And then you have spaceships going out to go get more minerals and everything. 
Um, now with there the, is no infrastructure. Would the government control ISS or the space station, and they would be responsible of moving the material up and down from orbit? I'm arguing that that policy shouldn't ask governments to do that. I'm saying that should be kept within the private realm. So private would be going to the asteroid, retrieving resources, and bringing it back, bring it back to Earth, and be responsible to bring it back down to the ground. But because like to incentivize water, right? Is I, that yeah. Kind of so water? that way, that way, you know, even if you go out to an asteroid and you bring back metric tons of platinum sure. and a couple metric tons of water, well, you know, there's going to be at least one barrel. That's going to help reduce. But wouldn't the, re- the market self regulate itself? So if you start bringing back I a have bunch no of platinum, idea. the cost of platinum would decrease. I mean, we've seen yeah. that already on Earth as they mined more platinum, the cost of platinum decreases. Yeah. So things are only valuable because people want them. And if you bring back too much platinum, I would think that eventually the cost of something more valuable, maybe water, as water becomes more and more scarce. Maybe that would surpass platinum, and then we would be mining that. You know what I mean? Like so. In, in mine. Where, where's um, that? I, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I think that water may surpass platinum, but if if all these companies go out and only mine platinum, and there's a demand for water, then that demand is going to show up. So what I'm recommending with policies to offset the potential of resource calls, where you go out and only get platinum, to say, yeah, I realize that platinum is the most valuable thing for you guys. Mm-hmm. Water is also kind of valuable to us too, to help promote the diversity of interests. That's all. It's probably more worthwhile thinking from um, someone who would want to go mine something. It would probably be in their favor to mine multiple things. Not, I mean, not just the most profitable one, but then, I mean, there's operation costs and then that's more weight you have to bring back. And And if you look at the, the companies doing it right now, Deep Space Industries, Planetary Resources, and SES Luxembourg is trying to get involved right now. Um, that's a major floundering point. So one thing I was trying to get at with the talking about the prices over time was that 2007, 2008, that's when you saw all these companies start because they were like, we could make platinum money. We could make a ton of money off of platinum. Then you had the price devaluation. And then it was like, oh, this isn't so hot. And so in 2014, John Lewis produces third book on the subject. So the first one is Space Resources, 1986. The second one is Mining the Sky in 1997, which starts this whole movement of hey we should go to space to get resources 2014 asteroid mining 101 that's the name of the book really great little book um few spelling mistakes here and there yeah yeah (laughs) it's a really cool little book because all the facts are updated they're mostly right it's like yeah this is this is all right you can get it for like 15 bucks nice yeah um he actually renegotiates on the the promise of platinum which is one thing that I'm seeing within the community, which is like, what do we do now? What do we support now? And so it's this resource course situation. You put all your marbles into the platinum and rare earth metals bucket, and or into the basket. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's exam week just about. <laughs> I've written this so much. And so there's issues with market saturation, infrastructure, developing those markets the inflexibility of technology. So I really look at developing infrastructure, developing a market. And then when we look at the Canadian regimes for like fish ownership versus American ownership, and we look at um, the use of mercantilism, you know, that mercantilism basis for developing different industries and developing supporting industries. Um, I'm just looking through all my examples. I have a question. Uh, In your uh, thesis, 
do you make a distinction between on-orbit price and surface price? Because I don't talk about is, the economics. Water is very useful and relatively expensive on orbit because it's hard to get up there and there's lots of uses. While platinum is very valuable down here because we use it for a lot of different things, but on orbit we don't have a good use for yeah. it. In your personal opinion, can you answer that question? I, I think water's a lot more usable and I can understand why new companies are going towards that direction to support water exploitation over mineral exploitation. Because of um, that orbit, in orbit where you can use it right then. Like we talked about steam rockets. And if you look oh, at the analysis. water, you can use the water. As your own propellant. Then. Yeah. Um, cool yeah. So there's a lot of cool opportunities with it. Um, it wouldn't fully push someone to go for water. Like I, I doubt water would be enough as is. But it could at least say, yeah, we can provide some basic support for your technology. We can take some things off your hands for you and give you some funds in exchange. Um, because that helps support all larger-scale missions. So if you look at the role of public policy and federal policy on what are we going to do about space, there is a charge in the national space policy to strengthen American industrial development for space. Yeah. However, how that's laid out, the most economic forms and everything, it might not be mining right now. But to have something like a water supply in space could help greatly reduce the costs of our other policy foci, um, open up a few new possibilities. So, Awesome. Do you guys have any more questions? Yeah, I, I, I'm nowhere capable of talking about the specific economics of price differentials and yeah. risk uncertainty cost estimates and net yeah, present value. That's it, another 200 pages to your thesis. No, no, that's actually Santos' research back in 1997 and 2006, okay. which I definitely recommend reading. Yeah, Mark Santos, he has talked about the politics and the economics of the whole thing. He'd be the guy to talk to. We should get him on the show. You'd, he would probably, he seems like, like all the stuff that I read about him, he seems like a great guy. So he'd yeah. probably love it. <laughs> uh, we have a couple questions from a listener, Daniel P. Um, he wrote to us before, but um, his questions for you are, and this is more asteroid mining rather than public policy. And you can yeah. still answer them. I'll try. <laughs> what major tech breakthroughs are still needed before we see, we'll see asteroid mining really take off? So if you look at the field right now about what people want to support and how they want to support it, it really comes down to robotic vehicles using in-situ resources for propulsion. Um, that's typically what we're seeing as a typical mission configuration, like CONOPS, a concept of operations for spaceflight, is you have some kind of minor that goes through location, really big, really heavy, but it gets you all the good stuff. Then you've got a ferry vehicle which comes back and forth when it's an energy economic to do so. And the idea right now is to do that all robotically because you don't want to send people out into unknown regions. Right. You have so, no idea. So you're saying these mining so, operations probably will never have people on them, people like operating them at all. It'll so, all be autonomous. And, and it's a really weird situation too because there's a lot of discussion about infrastructure development like we've talked about before uh simborg ran simborg and his proposal says he, he essentially takes a, the homestead act and then he scales it up right he scales it up to the fact where you would own four percent of the lunar surface or six percent of the martian surface that kind of scale up uh he actually ultimately recommends that ownership is dependent on your ability to transfer paying customers to and from your location 
But that doesn't apply to asteroids. No, it doesn't. Well, no, he extends it to asteroids. He's like, yeah, well, if you can transport people to an asteroid, then you should own it. A lot of people conflate the capability to move people and from place to place as an ownership. I actually argue against an ownership, rather adopting a licensing structure like we've seen with modern mining, uh, telecommunications, right. uh, technology development, geostationary orbits, stuff like that. Um, and so any, it's all over the place. But back, back to technology development, uh, you have the infrastructure, you have the old space interconnects if you want to pursue mineral resources, right. and then you have the space-space interconnects if you want to pursue like exploration resources of volatiles and waddles. Right. Uh, you've got a lot of guidance, navigation, control. You've got a lot of autonomy. You've and got these a lot are all of propulsion. Need to be, we need to have major technological breakthroughs before well, we can see asteroid mining. You've got in-situ resource utilization. Yeah, but you know, my, my you, question is, yeah. how many of these technologies are at a at the point or will be at the point in the near future to be usable for these operations and how many or compared to how many of them need to see some unforeseen breakthrough like to make it feasible to make it feasible yeah Yeah. could do you think with the technology that's available today or in the next five years yeah like what if what if launch costs were to decrease maybe tenfold in the next 10 years are we ready then or are there still necessities to come out of like in situ resource utilization and that kind of stuff? There's still necessities. Okay. What are those? Uh, I would argue in situ resource utilization. Yeah, that's actually uh, Daniel's next question is: Would you um, do you see that mining would usually be in situ or versus so bringing the raw material? You back? wouldn't want to bring the whole raw material back. So even if you look at a C type asteroid, um, the definition that I usually see about yeah. how it's broken down: eighty percent protein powder. 15% um, hydrolyzed minerals, and then 5% metals. Right, so organic material. Yeah, it, a lot of asteroids are just protein powder. <laughs> In yeah. terms of like the composition and what they're chemically like, it's carbon-based compounds, a lot of them. Right. Uh, one of the reasons they're so hard to find is they're black, really, really dark. Um, so most of the mining companies, most of the policy proposals, say they assume and they also say they are going to so it's a well-based assumption of you send your refinery to an asteroid, it breaks it down into constituent components, you refine or generally isolate those constituent components based on what you want, and then you bring back what you want. And that's based on the cost of transport. But that's based on like, current launch prices, right? So like, yeah. if, But, but if there's, still, de- there's still a factor of economic aspect to it. it just because... You know, some company breaks through and cuts down costs 20-fold. It still takes energy, time, and money to make the rest of the vehicle. Right. Right. But if you can say say the economics work out. So if, you, if you're chasing water, it'll be a long time before we get there. But if you're chasing something like platinum, at least in the beginning, obviously water is going to be more important in the long run. But if you can get – so say platinum, 35000 a kilogram. You know what I mean? And say okay. your launch – Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just – we can pick whatever number you want. I yeah, mean, it's it's all it's all kind of relative. But this this is actually why I moved away from the quantitative the thesis I was yeah, gonna yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. I like <laughs> that beginning of this year. I was like, I'm gonna do a like Markov model of commodity price and and platinum distribution within a market. And then I started looking at expectations and like predictions of long term 
economic. Oh God! Well, it's it just, terrible. It just it's seems terrifying. to me like a lot of the analysis that I've like seen or read mm-hmm. uh, have to do with the current launch prices, and they maybe don't foresee a 10x or 100x fold reduction in the cost that it takes to get there. Obviously, you would still account for the same cost to develop the technologies for in situ re- uh, utilization and the cost of like the the spaceship that has to go get there and develop it. But I think if you ran these analyses with a much lower cost to orbit. Maybe, and I, and I haven't done the numbers, but maybe you can actually just grab hunks of rock and throw them back down if you go to a C-type asteroid that has 10 times more minerals on it. Did you get kind of what my question is? You, the basis of your question is arguing whether or not energy suddenly becomes cheap in space. So, so it, you know, it, it just, I, I honestly don't know. I think... Part of that, the basis of that question and everything is based on it's, it's, you can reduce energy costs substantially without incurring costs somewhere else. So, I mean, I guess the argument, I, yeah, I, and from my perspective, versus uh, for in situ, um, which means mining it at the asteroid right. versus bringing raw materials back to be refined at near Earth, would be. I, I guess it would come down to when you're transporting mass, mass is mass, mm-hmm. and it, has energy requirements to get it from place to place. Right. If if you're transporting a huge hunk of rock that hasn't been refined, right. It is you're wasting you're wasting you're you're, you are, transporting you are wasting a lot care. of mass, but it may be more economically viable at that point because the cost of fuel to get to orbit and get there is cheaper. So you can bring more. Mine hitting goes with the rocket equation, TJ. Back. Yeah. So <laughs> something that was important to take into account. So Anthony talked about Alice Five, roughly thirty thousand dollars per kilogram. Uh, now yeah. SpaceX is roughly uh, one thousand per kilogram. That might go uh, down in the near term, but yeah. we don't know. So even at a thousand dollars a kilogram, uh, that is the cost to low Earth orbit. So Mm -hmm. you need to get your vehicle with fuel, and that vehicle needs to go out to the asteroid belt or near the asteroid. Then you either, two choices, you mine and get your refined minerals back, or you take all of the mass back. And what happens is that that moving the mass back, getting your spacecraft mass there and moving it back, that's governed by the rocket equation. And so you have a logarithmic increase in the propulsion mass required to bring that small mass back. And the logarithmic, you just mean it's like... If I increase, if I have a payload mass of one, right, and then I have a propellant mass of X, and that yeah. varies on ISP, that varies on even tank size. Remember that? <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Yeah, uh, yeah. as you add more mass, you add more tank, which adds more mass. Which yeah. add. But let's say if I have a propellant, if I have a payload of one, and I have a propellant mass of X. If I suddenly have a payload of two, I'm not going to have a propellant mass of two X. It's going to be like four X. Yeah. It, it yeah, adds yeah, up yeah. exponentially. Right. If I have so, a propellant mass of three, it'll be like nine. So it depends. So if you make a chunk of material that's many more, um, that has much more mass than a refinery, then the cost to get that mass back is, is I mean, now, wasted on unusable mass. The important thing is there is going to be an intersection point where it is cheap enough to bring back all the mass. That's my point. And your refinery methods don't have to be as good as they've previously been in all the current analysis, which look at the current costs. That is centuries out, maybe. 
Because best. what are, what is do you have any numbers on estimated concentrations of pure platinum oh, or yeah. pure metals in that? Uh, so some of the best asteroids I got charts and tables. <laughs> some of the best <laughs> asteroids in comparison to what we see on Earth. You know, you can look at uh, one estimate was thirty to thirty nine parts per million in terms of platinum concentration on some of the more mm-hmm. profitable asteroids. That's in comparison to 10 to 18 on the most profitable mines here in America. So, or not in America, in, in the world. And that that's where it really comes from is asteroids are differentiated. Like we see the crust and the core of the earth is. We have right. the really light stuff on the surface. We have the really heavy and the really good stuff in the middle. Um, so we see two, three, maybe even four times as much platinum and asteroids, depending on which one you choose, where it is, where it comes from, um, there's a little bit of differentiation within the belt itself, which is just great. Um, and some of even the best ones aren't even close to us, which is just great too. Um, trying to bring up some of my charts and everything. Yeah, so like if we look at things like nickel and everything, nickel iron, which is super useful for construction, you know, if you look at M-type asteroids, those are 80% in concentration, give or take. C-types, maybe 10%, you know. Yeah, so looking uh, S-types, at like a metal asteroid, we're 80%. So that refining step is going to be removing that 20% of non-useful material. Mm-hmm. So it might make sense sooner for those kind of asteroids to be brought back without processing. But you look at the platinum with, what, 13 parts per million? Yeah. That is a huge amount of non-useful oh, right, mass. Right. It would depend on the type of asteroid. It's not like a one-size, one-system no, fits all. No, there, yeah. there are three really interesting types of asteroids, and then they have subtypes in and of themselves. And they'll, they'll likely be mined differently. So you have the C-type, that's like your protein powder asteroid. And that will be mined in situ because it's not because yeah, it's, the yeah. concentration of valuable, quote-unquote, right. valuable things is relatively low. But, but a metallic-rich one, like, you might be able to get away. It would still be expensive, and it would be more expensive than a refinery, uh, I guess. But we might be able to get away with it as a yeah. Crude, more crude and method. and then you have the S-type. Those are the stony asteroids. Itakawa, that was visited by Hayabusa. Okay. Um, that was a stony asteroid. It looks like a pile of boulders. And that has like... It has metals, it's got silicates, it's got hydrolated, hydrolyzed silicates, so it's got water bound up in the stones and everything. It's actually really cool. And then you have the M-type. And uh, there's a lot of theories about origins of M-types and everything. You know, it could be part of a protoplanet, it could have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these are metal-rich asteroids. You have some really weird ones, like the Vesa-type Ms, uh, the V-class, which is a subset of M and X-class, <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then you have things like 16 Psyche. 16 Psyche by itself is enough metal to like sustain mankind for millions of years. So, but it's one of the most dense objects out there. It's like 4% of the asteroid bound. Yeah. <laughs> no, con- that's series, but yeah. In conclusion, just to my point, I think that even accounting for the rocket equation and that logarithmic law there, you, can, you, you may find that as we decrease launch costs, that it becomes easier to, to get by with mining asteroids without other huge breakthroughs. Like we may yeah. not need uh, as high yeah. quality of refineries okay. to the point where we need to bring back pure platinum or, you know what I mean? It makes the other breakthroughs easier. It's kind of, it's the yeah. law of universal so, benefits or something yeah, that's, like that. Yeah, that's a lot of Mark Santos research. 
back in 1970, he, he saw that the major driving costs for these missions were launch costs. So you're all right in that. He comes to some of the same conclusions, but there's, it, there's still so much extra stuff. Like, that energy cost as is right. but adds exponentially to the total cost. It would be interesting for me to see with current technologies and if, maybe with projected launch costs uh, within the next 10 years, where that falls. You know what I mean? What yeah. the price of, of, say, platinum, for example, would need to be for us to say, oh, it's definitely profitable. Let's go and, do it. And, and that's it wouldn't actually, be sustainable. It might not be sustainable, but like the first steps toward right, asteroid right. mining might be. And then when you bring back platinum, the cost of platinum decreases, so maybe it will no longer be sustainable. But then we've set up an infrastructure. And then we can go after other things like water and we but, can but we see so many historical examples where we say well we're going to go for the best thing right now and not think about long-term development and infrastructure development to support those alternative methods of making money and then you have the resource cost and it has happened with silver with gold so are you with deep sea minerals with diamonds yeah with platinum with palladium with rare earth metals with water with energy now with land it has happened over and over again. So, yeah. <laughs> so, then I want to talk about it, right? So, with this resource course, um, yeah. if you go specifically for the resource and are successful in bringing it back, then you can actually reduce that cost and harm yourself. Exactly. So, it's what you're kind of getting at is it's important to build a alternative market. If you look historically with the American or the British colonies, right? They came here looking for gold, but they actually built a market for their goods. And through the marketplace system, that's how they found success. And, di- and diversity and a dissemination of wealth among all, like, there, there's a lot of other leading things and there's a lot of other policies that were in place to make elements of that happen. Yeah. So but, you talk about uh, robots and remote remote control of these because bringing humans greatly complicates matters. Yeah. Uh, do you yeah. see um, having this need for remote control in the uh, asteroid belt and kind of pushing people to, say, Mars or some kind of... A station around Phobos, because a lot of the missions I've heard is that having people who are, you know, several million miles away from Earth, they can then control and be a lot closer because you're looking at a light lag of yeah. several minutes. And that means you have to either go fully autonomous or you deal with that delay. Yeah, I I haven't analyzed that. I think it would be a good idea. Um, but I haven't analyzed that from a policy aspect. Yeah. <laughs> I, I Yeah. It would make sense to do stuff like that. I mean, it takes tons of energy to get out there to begin with. It take it. That's pretty far out. I haven't. I haven't looked into that analysis. I haven't looked into that technology. Just writing policy to help support the initial start of, of these processes. Yeah. Processes. Are, do you advocate delaying the like going and and starting this industry in asteroid mining, if it means that we have a more robust infrastructure, or do you think that if companies go out and do it the wrong way but get it done and kind of open up this sort of market early on and that would also decrease the cost of doing it well we, we don't know it might increase the cost let's you, leave cost out of okay. it yeah yeah there's if people do it wrong but they do it and it gets builds a competition or, or builds a spirit of dreams yeah and <laughs> do you think it should be delayed um if it delaying it means that we have a more sustainable system for mining things that are off the earth. Do you, do you understand my question? The reason I did my research and the reason I set out down this path to try to add to the field as an engineer who's really interested yeah. in this is to set up 
a situation where technology and society might meet at the same time. It happened with the Outer Space Treaty. It's starting to happen now. You know, the reason we're looking at this even right now is because getting into space, and I'm doing air quotes so hard right now, like getting into space is getting a lot cheaper. The technology required, the hardware required, the cost to get there is getting really cheap. We're moving right. down this path. And the actions of private agencies right now have started to move us down this path even more. And even movies like Home Again, which has a minor on an asteroid, not going for materials, but doing something with it, that started us down a path too. Um, in terms of starting this now, I think that might be a good thing. I think there's such high lead times, both with the development of policy within this field and also with the development of technology within this field. By the time it matters, we'll already have thought about it and and and, and with my policy recommendations, right, I try to do is try to help both groups match pace. Okay. So using generic research technology, saying, hey, if you go around and mine water, we will have a place for you to shove your water into. We'll take your water. You know, by saying... You know, we're going to support your ability to license and recognize those licenses to asteroid mining claims. Right. And we're going to help promote, we're going to argue that you should participate with us to do sky surveys, but you can keep that characterization data private. And you argue that when, by the time I, the tech, by the time people are actually going to do these things, we'll already be prepared. And, that's, and that's one reason I recommend for this generic research is that both of them can move at the same pace. I see. Okay. Yeah, it, it tries to be somewhat of a comprehensive solution by saying, we're going to have the bare minimum for you guys. We'll try to do that. Um, you know, I'm still, I'm still on the fence whether or not it is entirely economic. I think it is. I think it's moving very quickly that way in light of rare earth metal. I mean, it isn't just economics. You have to realize some of it is environmental aspects. When you go and mine rare earth metals, those things are so tightly correlated with like radioactive material deposits. And if that's not what you're going to mine for... That sucks, because now you've got radioactive ore everywhere. Uh, if you look at some of these pictures, you see like red and yellow pools and everything. It's like, that is that is radiation right right there. That is terrible. Um, and I think, I think we're interested in the environmental aspect. The economics are looking better. I can't speak much to it, but we're moving in this direction. There's a reason companies are getting a ton of cash to start up these programs and start developing the basic technologies. Let's try to match pace. Let's try to have policy recommendations to support future economic and socially valuable asteroid resource exploitation activities. That's that's the name mm. of it. <laughs> so okay. it isn't a lot right now. You know, when, when we say really specific things, making really, really specific assumptions about what asteroids are profitable and what technologies you have to have and how much money everything needs to be, you know, you fall into a really dangerous place with policy. Policy should be able to grow and adapt. I provide policy recommendations based on historical analogs. That's it. Right. Not going to bet money on anything right now. I'm going to see how it all plays out. But in terms of mitigating risk, which is a, the, the focus of policy, in mitigating risk, whether that be you should wear your seatbelt so you don't harm yourself or other people, do we have codes on how we run nuclear power plants, that policy to mitigate risk can be there. And that's what the goal of this thesis and research work is to do. All right. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Yeah. 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 Appreciate it. Any really last fun. questions? Or? I don't think so. I think that's going to bring lucky episode number 13 oh. recorded on <laughs> Friday the 13th. 
um, so, to an end. So we're all going to have like a box can- canister bust open, right? <laughs> Hope not. <laughs> um, yeah, and this is also our season one finale. Um, it's the end of the semester. Uh, we're all students. We're all doing finals. We're going to take a break. Um, we're hoping to have some more episodes out in the summer and keep this alive. If not, we'll be back in the fall. And um, in the meantime, I'll still be manning the RIT Specs Twitter at R-I-T-S-P-E-X. Um, and you can get in touch with us, specscast at gmail.com. Uh, suggest future episodes for season two. Um, if you want to chat with us, I'm very timely with emails. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, it's been really, really fun. And um, yeah, thanks. thank you guys too, TJ and, and Augie, for doing this with me. Yeah. Um, so this podcast is made possible by RIT Specs, a space exploration student faculty research organization at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Special thanks to the Interactive Learning Grant Program for giving us the tools to promote student and faculty engagement outside the classroom with these three microphones that we're speaking into right now. Um, our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpexCast. We'll see you next season. <laughs>